You're listening to episode 11 of Justice, Mercy, Faith, a podcast from The Christian Citizen. In this episode, enjoy Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas on faith, mental health, and the rumor of grace, and contributors Claire Hayne Blanton on welcoming new mothers and making space for postpartum mood disorders in our churches. And the Reverend Margaret Markison suggests six ways to connect across difference. Curtis Ramsey Lucas is the editor of The Christian Citizen, and in honor of May being Mental Health Awareness Month, he brings us his latest piece, Faith, Mental Health, and the Rumor of Grace. Earlier this year, just weeks removed from having been hospitalized for depression, Michael Gerson delivered the sermon at Washington National Cathedral. Gerson, a Washington Post columnist and former aide and speechwriter to President George W. Bush, spoke eloquently about the depths he had plumbed and about the experience of transcendence we cannot explain or explain away. Gerson confessed a desire to live a more disciplined and mature Christian life, his failure to do so, and the persistence of doubt. Faith, thankfully, does not preclude doubt, he noted. It consists of staking your life on the rumor of grace. Gerson encouraged anyone with undiagnosed depression to seek help, noting there is no way to will yourself out of this disease any more than you can will yourself out of tuberculosis. One in five Americans annually experience mental health issues ranging in severity from temporary psychological distress to serious depression, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Of this number, four in 10 adults and just over half of children aged 8 to 15 receive appropriate care, often because of stigma associated with these illnesses and their treatments. Pastors can help address this disconnect between need and appropriate care by doing what Gerson did, preaching and speaking about mental illness with directness and compassion from the pulpit. As Megan Snell writes, when I speak frankly about depression from the pulpit, breaking the silence of mental illness, people respond with tearful gratitude for having their own life experience finally spoken about from the place of spiritual authority in our worship spaces. Speaking and preaching will only take a congregation so far. Real and sustained progress requires a change in cultures that demand people hide a part of who they are. We must become congregations in which people are welcome to be their whole selves, Snell writes. When we do the work of making our congregations welcoming to those with mental illness, we can live into a vision of the fullness of the body of Christ, accompanying all and excluding none. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, a good time to consider starting or expanding a mental health ministry in your church and community. There are several organizations and resources that can help. The American Psychiatric Association's Mental Health and Faith Community Partnership offers mental health, a guide for faith leaders, and a companion quick reference guide. Interfaith Network on Mental Illness has produced a video series for clergy and other resources. Mental Health Ministries offers educational resources, an e-newsletter, and links to denominational and national working group efforts on faith and mental illness. Pathways to Promise, on whose board I serve, seeks to facilitate the faith community's work in reaching out to those with mental illness and their families. Through training, consultation, and other resources, Pathways encourages congregations to become supportive and caring communities for those with mental health conditions.
Near the close of his sermon, Gerson noted, Many understandably pray for a strength they do not possess. But God's promise is somewhat different. Then even when strength fails, there is perseverance. And when perseverance fails, there is hope. And even when hope fails, there is love. And love never fails. That's a message we can embrace and extend to all, including those living with mental health conditions and their families. In so doing, we will help reduce stigma and increase the number of those receiving appropriate care. Claire Hine Blanton is an ordained Baptist minister in Houston, Texas. She is currently studying for her Ph.D. in Systematic Theology and Ethics from the University of Aberdeen. This week, she joins the podcast with her contribution, Welcoming New Mothers and Making Space for Postpartum Mood Disorders in Our Churches. Roughly a year ago, I began raising money for a race I was running and asked for support on social media. In particular, I was raising money for the Women's Place at Texas Children's Hospital for the support I had received for my postpartum anxiety and depression after the birth of my son. To my surprise, many of the commenters lauded me as brave for acknowledging in a public space my own struggles with mental health. Postpartum mood disorders impact one in five women and range from the more common forms of depression and anxiety to the less common postpartum psychosis or postpartum obsessive compulsive disorders. While hospitals may routinely provide information about postpartum mood disorder, far too many women go undiagnosed and untreated. As places that attract young families, churches need to be better aware of the prevalence of postpartum mood disorders and learn how to support new mothers and, to a lesser extent, postpartum mood disorder-affected fathers as they care for their children and themselves. Unfortunately, for too long, many churches have treated mental health disorders as a sign of spiritual failing or even demonic warfare. Research undertaken by Dr. Deborah Joy Allen confirms the continued reluctance congregants have to reach out to their church communities for mental health support. This might be particularly true for those suffering from a postpartum mood disorder. The birth of a baby is presumed to be a particularly joyful time in one's life. This was certainly reflected in some of the comments I received from people. Congratulations, you must be so in love with him already. Aren't newborns wonderful? Cherish this time, it goes by too quickly. While all of these statements were true and given by lovely and well-meaning individuals, they were equally false. Yes, I loved my son, but I was also completely overwhelmed by the challenges of new motherhood and wasn't finding the joy in it that everyone kept telling me I should. This was an early indication that something was off, and thankfully, my obstetrician had given us information on postpartum mood disorders earlier in my pregnancy. As a result, we were able to identify and treat it early, but that disconnect between what I was feeling and what I should be feeling exasperated my symptoms. Of course, we should celebrate the birth of a child, especially in the church. But we should also make space for those with postpartum mood disorders to receive support without the guilt often associated with it. 
One way to do so is to shift how we talk about mental health in our congregations. The National Institute of Health reports that an estimated 18.9% of all adults in the United States were living with mental illnesses in 2017. Mental health should be something we talk about in churches and work to destigmatize. We would do well to find concrete ways to help those who are either in a period of acute mental distress or suffer from long-term mental health disorders. As we enter National Mental Health Awareness Month, let us re-examine how mental health is discussed in our congregations. One of the biggest support systems I found was a group of other young mothers at my church. Once you could relate to not only the joy of newborns, but the very real difficulties that came along with a new baby. This acknowledgement that not all of new motherhood is joyful helped assuage some of the guilt I felt. It separated out the reality of living a life that is joyful in Christ and the reality that I do not always feel joyful in the circumstances of my life. Perhaps this is the first step in the conversation, simply providing the place for engagement that gives permission to be honest about our lives without feeling like less of a Christian. The Reverend Margaret Markison helps ministers do their work without wearing out or burning out through ministry coaching, presentations, and online resources, which can be found at margaretmarkison.com. She joins the podcast this week with suggestions on six ways to connect across difference. One summer, when we were on vacation, my parents wanted to visit a Lutheran church. They warned me that the service was going to be different from our evangelical church, that it would be more formal and liturgical. I remember being terrified at the thought of experiencing worship that was so unlike what I was used to. I've since learned to deeply appreciate liturgical worship, and I still occasionally have those feelings of fear in the face of difference, whether interpersonal, religious, or political. Dealing with difference is part of human experience. It's not easy. We feel safer and more comfortable with those who look and think like us. It's biological. However, even with those we are most like, we struggle with the challenge of difference. Witness family life. Genetic similarity does not mean the struggle disappears. Of course, in a diverse society, we face the challenge of differing perspectives and life experience all the time. From the holiday dinner table to the church council to interfaith dialogue, we encounter people who think, believe, dress, and act differently than we do. Here are six ways to approach those who have a different point of view. None of them are easy or quick. However, quick fixes don't work in relationships. You can use these in any relationship, your family, your church, interfaith conversations, and even politics. One, define yourself. Describe as clearly as you can what you believe and what you want. In some situations, especially in leadership, you start with this step. In others, you will begin with step number two, listen. In highly fraught situations, you may simply show up and listen. As Ronald Richardson says about some challenging conversations about race, my eye position was evident in how he was present with them 
and how I related to them. That's from his book, Polarization and the Healthier Church. You are saying, I'm here, and often that is plenty. Don't talk too long. Don't argue. Don't try to convince others you are right and they are wrong. Reverend Larry Matthews, a mentor of mine, used to recommend you say, that's just how I see it. Two, listen. Truly listen. Don't simply listen to see how you can respond to convince the other of your point of view. Don't listen to see how quickly you can get the conversation over to move on to other tasks. Be fully present with the other. Here's one technique I've been practicing lately. Imagine you had to repeat the other's words back to them. Are you listening closely enough to remember? Three, make sure you understand. Respond with something like this. Here's how I understand what you're saying. Repeat the gist of what you got. Then ask, have I got it right? Have I got it all? I found in my work with leaders that they rarely do this. When they take the time, people appreciate it and respond, and leaders get valuable information. Don't jump to trying to convince them. Stay in the place of listening and seeking understanding. This is the part I notice I too often skip in my personal life. It's harder with those we are closest to. Four, stay connected with people with whom you disagree. We usually avoid them. They make us uncomfortable. Instead, Episcopal priest Ed Bacon suggests, when you see the person at the church coffee hour you want to avoid, use that as a sign to connect. Remember, you you can connect with people around other topics than the issue at hand. Learn more about their interests and their families, for example. Be genuinely interested in them. Five, don't chase after people trying to connect or convince them. Both avoiding and chasing are anxious responses. In some situations, you can connect in a neutral way. I'm a big fan of handwritten notes and cards. In today's world, real mail has a big impact. If you want to connect with someone who is not responding, send them a card. Then let it go for a while and reach out again later. Six, talk to people who are motivated. Look for those whose eyes light up when you are engaging with them. It's better to talk to those who disagree yet are motivated to continue the conversation than with those who agree and whose eyes are glazed over. You can repeat this process as often as you like. Stay curious, stay open, and see what happens over time. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thank you to this week's contributors, Curtis Ramsey Lucas, Claire Hayne Blanton, and the Reverend Margaret Markison. Our theme music is Believable Too by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show and website are produced by myself, Joshua Keiki. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel Keiki, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkuff-Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, 
the Reverend Kimberly Peyton Jones, the Reverend Stephen T. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit the website christiancitizen.us. We'll be back with a new episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith on May 14th. Thanks for listening.